1: Hello and welcome to Your Booked. It's the beginning of a brand new term and we're celebrating the back to school mood with a very special guest, an academic icon, the legendary classicist Mary Beard. Before we start, I'd like to tell you about some events we have coming up. On the 6th and 7th of October, I'll be at Henley Literary Festival. I'm running a creative writing workshop with the poet and communications expert Antonia Taylor on the 6th. At the time of writing, a handful of tickets are still available. Then on the 7th, I'm talking about the advice I'd give my teenage self with Isabella Doyter, Jaspreet Cower, and Leah Davis. After that, I'm interviewing Rob Rinder about his phenomenal debut novel, The Trial. Tickets are available from henleyliteraryfestival.co.uk. I love Henley. It's so friendly, it's run by one of the best teams in the business, the programming is really smart, and every year I fall in love with a new author. And everywhere you go, someone gives you Gower Cottage brownies. On the 21st and the 22nd of October, producer Dale and I will be chairing a range of events at our beloved local, the Margate Bookie, for its biggest, brightest year yet. Speakers include AC Grayling, Deborah Levy, podcast alumnus Adam Kay, and some names too exciting for me to reveal just now. Go to margatebookie.com for tickets and information. Come down, we'll have a blast. You can also visit the magical Margate Bookshop if you can't get to the festival, but you'd like a personalised and dedicated copy of any of my books. The novels Limelight, Careering and Insatiable and the memoirs How to Be a Grown-Up and The Sisterhood. Go to themargatebookshop.com and fill in the contact form. They deliver nationwide across the UK. American listeners, my first book, How to Be a Grown-Up published by Urano, is out now. I'll be doing a Zoom event with best-selling superstar and author of Grow the F-Up, Sarah Knight, on the 12th of October. For details, check out Urano Publishing on Instagram. After all that, let's get to today's guest. Although Mary Beard hardly needs an introduction, she's renowned and beloved, bringing ancient Rome to life for millions of us. She's the author of several bestsellers, including Women in Power. Her brand new book, Emperors of Rome, out on the 28th of September, takes us to the heart of ancient Rome, asking us to open our minds and interrogate what we think we know about the period and its people. We were lucky enough to interview Mary at the Jaipur Literary Festival at Suniva Fushi this year. Huge thanks to Suniva for hosting us. Hello, so we are... Um, coming to you from Fuji in the Maldives, I'm at the Jaipur Literary Festival with Mary Beard. I'm very excited <laughs> about this. Um, you might hear some birds. You might hear us, you know, gasp with joy or other when we see bats and lizards and things. There are lots of fruit bats hanging around in the day. Um, so hopefully you'll hear some atmospheric forest noise. Mary, I'd love to start by asking you if there is a particular book that you read as a young reader that really ignited a passion for the past.
2: Oh, that's quite difficult. I mean, all kinds of books in different ways. And it depends how far distant past you're talking about. I mean, I remember uh, being absolutely uh, fixated in a way that I now feel a bit embarrassed about on Jane Eyre, um, and, but I'm not quite sure that I kind of saw it in its historical context. I think I saw it a, 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 as a sort of slightly kind of, well, I'm, as I say, I'm a bit ashamed to say, you know, the idea of you know, reader, I married
1: him, kind of way. Was it, were you in your teens, or was it an early book for you? It
2: was quite an early book. We read it in my you know, slightly academic primary school. Um, I did read it then, um, you know, as a, as you can, you know, as a love story, and I was, you know, I was delighted when, you know, in the end Jane gets her bloke, you know, um, even though blinded. Uh, Now, of course, I feel much more suspicious uh, about it and ambivalent about whether, whether Jane really. Um, whether whether it was the best outcome for Jane I'm not I'm not certain but uh, so I think you yeah, you do you change your view and of course it's what's great is they're books that sort of live with you and mark the way you see things differently as you get older I mean I think one of the odd things about getting older is that you don't feel older or at least many of us don't actually feel older so, but if you want to track how you thought differently sometimes the books that you used to read help you do that help you see that you've you've sort of changed your views on some things and uh Jane Eyre is one of the one of those tracking devices for me I think
1: uh, just this morning, I'm reading um, Stranger on a Train by Jenny Diski at the moment. And she talks about how when she's writing, she is 50, and she has a very clear memory of, I think, being nine or 11 and thinking in the abstract and she's thinking something like you know i will be 50 in 1997 and how she cannot imagine that possibility no. and she no. sort of imagines herself as she is but she has a she is reminded of it at 50 and can really visit herself age yeah. nine very very clearly and yeah. that and i suppose um i've not thought about this before but it's interesting isn't it sort of you know the you can and do time travel and you allow us all to time travel but it does tend to go in one direction
2: <laughs> yes yeah but but i think that literature is hugely important i think fiction and nonfiction fiction actually is hugely important in um in helping us understand what what change what your own personal change is like
1: are there any books that you've changed your mind about in a different way are there any <laughs> is there anything you picked up and you didn't respond to it or get on with it, and then came to love it later?
2: In a way, I think I, Robert Graves' I, Claudius, would be one of those, and because this is kind of the perhaps the, the downside of television. I hadn't read I, Claudius when I was very little. I then saw the television series, the BBC television series, and completely loved it um, you know, so much that I can still do the lines, you know. Oh wow. <laughs> Is there anyone in Rome who has not slept with my daughter? Um And then I thought I would read the book. Um at that point the book was very disappointing, because in fact it turned out that very many of the memorable lines in the T V series were not written by Graves at all. They'd been put in by the scriptwriter Jack Pullman. And I uh, you know, I was rather disappointed not to find them there I was hoping I was going to go from from you know recognizable quote to recognizable quote and you know I was also hoping that it would be as the BBC had done it a kind of fantastically cross claustrophobic internalized story um and I discovered actually they went outside the palace in the in the book the um, audacity. yeah no, the BBC had been doing it so on the cheap that they never they never went outside the studio um and, and so I kind of put it on one side. I thought, this isn't the I Claudius I knew. And then I went back to it, oh, decades later, without being so kind of uh, involved in uh, the TV series. And I found it much more interesting. I kind of saw it with fresh eyes, I suppose.
1: I do think it's so interesting how, I suppose, our other experiences inform the way we read and what we take from something and there are definitely there are so many books that I tried to read in my teens and I just wasn't ready for them and I didn't get them I think anything to do with you know romantic relationships and I suppose perhaps going back to Jane Eyre which is so sharp and clear and I think when one is in the early stages of one's life and is dreaming about impossible love and big grand doomed and yeah. Psychologically violent love. I can see why. I think that appeals yeah. to to lots of. That. Especially, you know, perhaps if you know, well, I don't want to, you know, assume anything about what you were like when you were younger. But you know, you are reading a lot, and you've got a vivid interior life, and you're waiting for the the big thing. And perhaps the real life we see around us doesn't match up to what we're no. hoping for. Yeah. And then you read things about people who you Know, just sort of get divorced and don't really say very much, and it happens in the book in real time, and that's the sort of thing like, oh, I just don't get it, and mm. now I you know inhale yeah. it.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's that's right. I mean, I remember trying to understand what Margaret Drabble's heroines were doing before you know, before I was quite old enough to do so. You know, the idea of the millstone and getting pregnant, you know, was this glamorous and exciting, or was it terrible?
1: Is it in the millstone? I could be completely wrong, it, or it might be the Garrick here I can't remember but it opens up with an amazing anecdote about a woman who needs to get an abortion and um and I don't I don't think it's the the main character I think it's a friend of hers it's, it's an anecdote and she goes on at length um about the sort of the distress that you know caused her and sort of you know her terrible mental health problems um in a way that's possibly quite you know progressive yeah. and unusual for the time we didn't and, but, um, call them
2: mental health problems then. <laughs> <I don't
1: know. laughs> It's like a mad help, but um, doesn't get the abortion because the doctor is convinced that it would cause her more mental distress. And then, when leaving, is almost run over by a bus because she's so panicky and distracted, and the shock of that.
2: Yes, no, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I I think, though, I mean, people always imagine that someone like me spent their youth absolutely buried in books. And I did read quite a lot. But, you know, I don't... I don't think of my um childhood and adolescence as being particularly curled up in a corner with a book. Um uh n now maybe that's my own misremembering or you know, maybe you know, maybe I don't want to think of myself like that. I have a kind of much more, you know, glamorous girl about town image of myself. It may well not have been true. But uh, you know, I think you know, I've talked about Jane Eyre, but uh, I, I think there are some people whose who who really did um Actually devour the classics. I mean, the English classics, you know, before they were 15. And I, you know, didn't do that.
1: So what were you like then? Um...
2: <laughs> well, I suppose I was a swat who was trying not to be. I mean, I think this is where, you know, maybe I've got to mistrust my own memory because maybe I like to think of myself as being, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll. And really, I, you know, what I was doing. What was I doing? Well, perhaps I was spending a lot of time learning my Latin and Greek verbs, actually. Um still not quite as um still not quite that kind of intensity though of you know burying yourself in the fictional in fictional worlds, and I think I probably was more interested once I got very keen, partly through archaeology, and, you know partly for what I was doing at school um in the ancient world, I became very interested in non fiction and then trying to find out things. So I think books for me were they were partly this sort of oh, fictional, experiential thing, but they were also the access to knowledge. Now, that is not going to be the same for kids in the future, I think. You know, I wonder what I would have done if I had Google. <laughs> I think I might I think I might have spent all my time on Google probably.
1: That's weird. <laughs> It's an interior muscle, I think, that's going to atrophy. I'm, so I remember, you know, nothing very serious, but definitely there being things I didn't know about and wanting to find out and films I'd hear about but couldn't see readily or easily. Yeah. And I sort of imagine what yeah. they would be like and yes. doing that with books as well.
2: Yes. No, I think, and I think it's very interesting. And there, were, there was knowledge that you couldn't get at uh, until you got the book. Whereas now, of course, there's still some of that. Um, but you do think that your your phone or your laptop gives you access to anything that you want to know. And you know, I think that's as straightforward as things like, you know, the railway timetable. Mm. I mean, I I remember when I well, I didn't actually own these; my parents did. You know, Thomas Cook's train time term and it was a book and you could go and you could imagine through it you know what would it be like wanting to go from Paris to Vienna right whereas now it's not quite the same pushing the train line button
1: no there's not no romance <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry there goes the sponsor <laughs>
2: sorry train line i use you all the time but you don't have the romance that flicking through these pages and wondering about different journeys
1: to me archaeology as a choice as a a jumping off point that feels social and outdoorsy not the um beginning of an (laughs) academic path somebody does want to bury themselves away and i was thinking as well about something um an accusation that I think is fairly levered at sort of, you know, my generation and younger people. And it's to do with our having all the information there all the time. It's just sort of staying indoors and being shut up with it. And I think there's a lot of that now is kind of the way we fetishise certain books and we are hiding and escaping. And we probably do need to be out in the world and be more curious about it and have that that spirit of finding out.
2: Yeah, you know, I think archaeology is kind of symbiotic with with books uh, you know, it, it now does, I can see, you know, it seems rather like a healthy outdoor activity in which you, um, uh, camp out in a field <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, a bit sort of, um, boy scoutish. Um, uh, for me, it, it was, yeah, I suppose it was a bit like that, but that was a bit I didn't like very much. Um, it, archaeology was always, was about living in a separate community. It was about, um, you know, my mum and dad thought I was off on excavations, um, doing really serious academic stuff. Actually, I was with a lot of other young people and doing things that I couldn't really do at home. So archaeology was a was an escape, but it's also it is quite difficult to to capture, I think, the, some of the excitement about it. I mean, an awful lot of archaeology is very boring. You know, it's just kind of, you know, cold and hard work and pushing wheelbarrows and the kind of thing. Um, but, you know, finding something, you know, finding something that was dropped from, uh, you know, from the past. Uh, and you know, nobody had touched for 2,000 years. Yeah. I and mean, that's extraordinary, is
1: To fit the last
2: person who touched that With, before you. That's is... right. I, I think, you know, and there are some books which almost get that, I think. You know, And I think there are some novels about Rome, ancient Rome, where you kind of, where you have a fictional version of that, like what it would be like to be there. I think, you know, Robert Harris's Pompeii, for example, is um, a, a wonderful, or a wonderful kind of encapsulation of how you can imagine a city that is not going to be a city um, for very much longer. So I think that archaeology took me, I mean, the Harris Pompeii book was much later, but it, you know, took me to that sort of sense of excitement and all the kinds of bits of archaeology—the kind of Indiana Jones bits of archaeology—that you know now it's like dis- disapproval of, right? You know, m- much more archaeology now is kind of going around with, a, um, with computer gizmos trying to do, um, you know, planning without actually digging. CSI
1: archaeology, yeah, where they yeah, seem sort to of do the quick scanning. And... That's
2: right. That's right. But you know, I you know I got very. Interested with things like the tales of Heinrich Schliemann, who excavated Troy and you know found you know the all, all the gold that was you know that was associated with the really distant past, and that was a very romantic story. It's a romantic story I've been teaching my students to kind of put out of their heads entirely for decades now. But for me, it was very exciting.
1: So uh, shamefully, I, I do not know um, Heinrich Schliemann. Is uh, did he write a, a memoir oh, or a, he, an account of his? He,
2: wrote enormous numbers of books about his uh, his discoveries. He he was a you know he was actually a bit of a crook. He was uh you know, a a crook, he was German and he was determined to find the site of Troy. You know, so here you got you know, you've been reading the Iliad in the Odyssey, if, you know, you're a swatty girl like me, uh doing Latin and Greek at school. And Schliemann wanted to show that those stories had a truth value so it was came putting together myth and fiction with what you could actually um put your mm. finger on um and he wrote himself into the history of archaeology partly by writing tome after tome mm. on what he'd discovered now you it, know it it's a, a a big story that you can that you can kind of get into uh, and follow up in different ways because there's all sorts of reasons for supposing he really was a crook and that although some of this was found exactly how and where and when he said it was you know there was a bit of country trick going on here um and so i got i got interested in the mystery of the past which you partly saw through you know ancient texts you know was you know did the did the stories of, did Homer's stories represent any kind of reality or not? Were they entirely fictional or were there, was there somewhere a person called Odysseus or Achilles? So that was very interesting. And then, but then you could overlay it with the way other people had uh, thought and reconfigured this and wanted to make it true.
1: Um, I was reading an interview that you did with the New York Times about that sort of exasperation, you know, you constantly being asked to be like, well, what can we take from the past sort of that fits? How do we make sense of this? And people are sort of so desperate to to see that when it's not necessarily useful or helpful. And I suppose that's, you know, the difference between the the stories we know and the stories we're collectively writing now. And, mm. you know, and I think you said sort of, you know, well, in 200 years, what are we going to be? Yeah. Who are we going to be comparing these guys to? Yes.
2: You know, and I think I think that relationship between us and the stories of the past and then thinking about how we're going to be the stories of the future is extremely interesting and people are you know, it in different ways, some of which I kind of don't like very much, but in different ways it really gets people. I mean, I remember when I think the BBC did a uh, a dramatisation of the story of Troy and the fall of Troy. And uh, they cast a black guy as Achilles. And the amount of outcry about that, you know, when and you felt you had to come and say, look, Achilles never existed. You know, actually, this is a story. The stories from the past are are stories. It's no good saying Achilles wasn't black. Achilles wasn't, you know, full stop. And uh, although, you know, I spent a lot of time saying, look, you can't reify all this. You can't make it true because it it's you know whatever Schliemann did or whatever we think about the archaeology of the Trojan War or whatever you know these these people these characters are fiction, there is a terribly strong desire for people to you know put a face to a name mm. and and although you know, we perhaps shouldn't knock it you know there's there's something about. The distant past, the fictions and the stories of the distant past, and you know my version of putting a face to a name it's not quite that, but it's about digging it up. It is about
1: um, finding the reality of the past in all this. the human side of it, I suppose, and quite often it is sort of it's it's very numerical, and I don't know whether one would say. The, you know the quantifying of data has a lot to do with who has been allowed to record that information and you know sort of hearing about however many thousand people sort of died in the battle and that being kind of a an abstract number that you learn and yet and wanting to see who those people were and what led them there and how they lived I think that's what's fascinating and I think that's the only way that well not the only way that makes it useful for now but that is really How we can. And, you know, I
2: think that fiction has an important part to play in that because um, they haven't left their stories. Um, You know, most ordinary people in the ancient world, you know, the foot soldiers who died in the battles, they haven't left their stories. You know, we can see little glimpses of the stories that sometimes you find on tombstones, you know, put up by the loving wife to her husband to whom she'd been devoted, etc. And you see that kind of A a tiny, tiny glimpse of a relationship. Mm. But otherwise, if you want to think about what it was like to be an ordinary person, then in part, fiction is what does it for you. I I kind of love um, Lindsay Davis's Falco novels. (laughs) and I I think she's wonderful because she does recreate that sort of... um, uh, seedy, gumshoe sort of world of ancient Rome, it might be entirely wrong, you know, and, and you know, she makes all the, sometimes I suspect, deliberate mistakes that historical novelists make, I mean, because historical novelists like to, you know, like to sew little things like the Weekend into a Roman novel so that we can have a pleasure of thinking the Romans didn't have weekends, you know, so there is a, a sort of dialogue. But, you know, Lindsay Dovis is very good at just kind of capturing what it was like to live on the top floor of an apartment block, you know, and what the stairs were like and how you got up there and, uh, and the, you know, the mess and the filth and most of what we read from, actually from antiquity itself, not all of it, but most of it enables us, allows us to forget the film mm. and the ordinary people. It allows us to kind of look only at the posh, mostly the posh men. But um, So I think, again, it's where there is an interesting intersection between uh, fiction and the historical tradition. And they kind of go together. And I think that's what's happening too in... Um, you know the many seri- the, the many novels that have come out over the last what five to ten years seeing the ancient mythological narrative mm. from a female point of view you know what does it feel like to be medusa or Circe, or whatever and you know i think that's that's all to that's really productive it's all to the
1: good it's a new a new lens a new angle yeah. sort of you know, moving yeah. and looking in a yeah. way. Yeah, and yes. I,
2: think it, I think it is new, and I think it's not quite as new as people say. Mm. Um, you know, because when I was a kid, what we were all encouraged to do was Mary Renault, read Mary Renault's novels. Now, they weren't quite giving you a female perspective, but Renault was gay, and she was writing about the myths of the ancient world, very definitely informed by her own sexuality, uh and you know there's never been a time really when people haven't reimagined uh ancient myth in modern fiction um but each new generation does it in a way that fits
1: their own concerns you know more acutely Mm,
0: that's
1: so true i think that we do when we look back at it we do see what we want to see and i think it's um i was thinking this after the uh wonderful talk yesterday um with uh peter and sanjeev and the um the Silk Road and yeah. the the nautical trade, mm. um, and there was so much of it that i you know I knew so little, but i was i suppose really struck by that sense that we either kind of we see perfect parallels with what we know or we're drawn by something that seems totally shocking and totally other, and yeah. I think we tend yeah. to miss the
2: that, yeah we miss what's in between and i th- I think you know people often say that look if you're thinking about um ancient history but you could, I think, do it for any period of history. You know, part of it feels like you're on a tightrope. And you're looking down on one side of the tightrope and everything looks perfectly normal, just what you'd expect. And you look down on the other side of the tightrope and they're doing really weird things. You know, that, so, you know, the past is either utterly foreign or absolutely understandable. You know, the kind of, oh, weren't they just like us kind of line. Uh, and I think what's, what's interesting and difficult is how you join those up. Mm. And, you know, I think that both fiction and non-fiction writers have got a part to play in that.
0: J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. We'll be back to Mary soon, but
1: now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen this woman's work, Essays on Music, compiled by Kim Gordon and former podcast guest Junaid Gleeson. This is a collection of eclectic and addictive writing. I loved Anne Enright's essay on Laurie Anderson and the overwhelming experience of being a fan beside an idol. Mitaza Buteau's piece on how Otis Redding soothed her father during his exile from Pakistan made me cry. This woman's work is published by Orion and out now. Now back to Mary. I'm really curious about um, if and when you read for pleasure, if you class all reading as pleasure because there is so much required reading Uh, in your work, are you still able to read purely for fun or is there always an overlap? There's
2: always an overlap. If I were to say I do not read for pleasure, that would give the wrong impression because I enjoy what I read. Um, But I very rarely think, oh, that's something I'd quite like to read. Everything is in some way an obligation. Now, I'm lucky because the obligations I have are the obligations I enjoy. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, gosh, I'd really love to curl up with a novel, but instead I'm having to sit down and review these books on Roman history. Uh, I'm very interested by what I read. Um, and that goes for the fiction and non-fiction that I read. But it's all... Re- it's all in some ways related to work. And, you know, I, I think I feel, I feel happy
1: with that, actually.
2: I think a, a writing and academic life always is like that.
1: Well, that's, I think, you know, the nature of what you work. It's not like you're, I mean, you know, for all we know, there are people who would love this, but it's not like you've got to kind of hunker down over lots of, like, accountancy manuals or something. That it is a.
2: <laughs> maybe people who do hunker down over accountancy manuals have a great time with them. It
1: brings them joy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, I think what could be a more privileged, lucky life than to earn earn your pay for reading things that um, you want to read? But it does it does skew it because it it doesn't feel quite like free choice. Mm. Um, it doesn't you know? I, I, it doesn't feel like an imposition, but you relate to uh, what you read in a different way. And you're always thinking, about how am I going to use this? You know, what's what am I learning from this, that might be useful? So when I read nonfiction, I think, how have they done this? How have they made it interesting? And I, you, you often think, for example, about your own craft, right? And whether, whether even if it's not. It's not something that you're reading because it's about Rome or it's about your period or it's about whatever. It's, but you're still thinking, how they you know, how they opened up this mm. historical narrative to
1: people from the Technique outside? Technique and effect and how... Yes. In, it's I suppose, you know, in the way that... It, how they are acting as storytellers mm. in the way that we think about cinema, I yes. think.
2: And uh, what kind of, of storytelling... It? You know, because you know, in some ways, um, not all, but a lot of non-fiction is Based on storytelling of of a slightly different kind, but it's still in some ways storytelling. It also has to engage people, and I I think that I suppose what I've struggled with over over the last 40 years, let's say, is how you take the very distant past and make people interested in it. You know, because you know, and, and people often say, well. Um, You know, when you do television, that must be different from when you teach undergraduate students at Cambridge, and it isn't very different actually. I
1: undergraduates, I bet that's a tough audience. Really got to hold their attention in at the morning is, lecture.
2: You know, that is really a tough audience, and it's a, a tougher audience, I think, than the people who decide to turn on a documentary about the Romans on telly at eight <laughs> o'clock at night. Um And I had a very, I mean, I have a, a very memorable turning point on this when I just got my first academic job in London and I was you know, trying to write academic articles really to make my career okay you know what you have to do and I remember going out to lunch with a guy a senior guy who had said he'd read a a, a draft of something I'd just written I can sort of visualise this. It was in the Pizza Express, the original Pizza Express branch opposite the British Museum, which was where the British Library then was. And we we went and we had a pizza and a bottle of wine. At the end of lunch, he said, we got down to talking about what I'd given him to read. And he said, you know, this is fine and it's probably right, but, you know, it's very boring. And I thought, blimey. You know, that's not what that's not what a young academic wants to hear, very boring. It is not. But it was, you know, I, I feel now so grateful that he nerved himself to do, which you know, can't have been, you know, can't have been easy. You know, we did Take need a quite of a... wine. <laughs> we did need a bottle of wine, and I think probably more, in order to get to this point of honesty. But it was so useful. If there's any piece of advice I've ever had about writing, it is, don't let it be boring. And it's, and it's very easy to think that just because you want to say this, mm. someone else might want to read it. Well, sorry,
1: Sunshine. No. I mean, as a novelist, that is my greatest fear, and I'm in the very, you know, jammy position of just being able to make it all up without uh, uh, that fact checking. But did you, was it quite, were you immediately sort of thinking, this is really useful and helpful and, you know, he has a point and all... <laughs> Tell me that you were a little bit distraught for 20 minutes.
2: I was distraught. You know, I was, because, you know, I think, you know, lots of people, whether they're fiction writers or non fiction writers, they show their work around to other people, to their friends. And they claim, and in some sense, I think, truly and sincerely and honestly, they claim that they want to have a a true reaction. They don't really, they want people to say it's nice, it's good. Right, when you so when you give your work to somebody you're not actually looking really at some level you're not looking for a free and frank comment you're looking for someone to come back and say, "I really enjoyed that and so of course when that doesn't happen um it's a shock but i, I there's no writer in the world who thinks that being told they're dull is a compliment um but it was done with such frankness that you couldn't ignore it and I you know and you know he didn't actually just leave me um you know stranded he said look why didn't you You know you could have done it this way you could have you know why am I going to how were you going to hook us in so he was helpful too and I think it was really really useful I shouldn't be interviewing you but um (laughs) that isn't the idea but you see I'm you just said that you thought that You know, it was kind of easier being a fiction writer because you didn't have, you know, you were free to do what you wanted, really. And I think that's, for me, absolutely terrifying. I think I could, one thing I could never, ever write is fiction because I think, how do you start knowing that it's entirely up to you where that story goes? And that's too terrifying for me. I mean, I want to be able to tell a new and an interesting and a different story, but I still need to know that in the end Julius Caesar is going to be assassinated. You know, I, it's it's not open ended. I think that kind of that sense of looking into a void, where you don't know what the end is going to be. I mean, that would drive me mad.
1: Well, it was so funny when we were watching um, Elizabeth last night. It was really extraordinary sort of to watch it, you know, with the director and to hear about the process of making it. But there were a few moments where I found myself sort of having quite like, oh, I hope this happens. Oh, no, 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 hold on. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah.
2: no, that's right. That's absolutely right. And I, I think that, um, you know, I I feel, you know, it sounds a bit dull, and I feel safer. I feel more confident in telling an original story within a framework that you that is already at some level set. I mean, in the ancient world, you've got plenty of opportunity um, for for riffing in different ways. But you know, you don't you don't have to have Julius Caesar surviving till he's eighty five. And you know, I suppose, in a way, it's a bit like uh, this. Is, I don't mean to make this sound such an aggrandizing comparison, but I mean it's the same really I suppose with greek tragic drama whereas you know you, you people often say that how could it be exciting to tell that apparently fictional story when even though we know that these characters didn't exist the mythological narrative basically told you that cassandra was going to die and agamemnon was going to die and What you tell people when they say that you say, well, look, it's really exciting because there's, it can be exciting even if you do know what the end is. You know, writing, writing fiction does not depend on not knowing how it's going to end. You can write really exciting fiction when everybody knows how it's going to end. But you know, when we were watching that film of Elizabeth last night, I, I I thought a bit the same as you that you can be sort of on the edge of your seat even though you know what's going to happen.
1: I remember at school I studying Antigone, and I've not thought about this in so long, but, you know, that's exactly it. But I I knew, well, everyone dies. Yes, everybody <laughs> dies. And it ends with many more deaths. But that being, you know, so captivating, and yeah. it does have that tension, yes. and I suppose that's why we keep studying those yeah. dramatists and going back to them. And I think that's well, I'm always so delighted, thinking about people, you know, Aristophanes and... The, the the funny ones are still funny. Oh, you think so? Like,
2: no? <laughs> I find it quite hard to find much of what is called ancient comedy very funny. I I think that you can put them on stage and make them funny. Um, But I think you're adding an awful lot of your own stuff in, in that case. I, I mean, I wrote a book about... Roman laughter once, partly because partly only, because I did think I don't understand how this is funny, and what does that tell me about the ancient world? What does that tell me about the gap between now and and then? You know, can I understand their jokes when I laugh at their jokes, which occasionally I do? Am I laughing or will they laughed at? And it's that sort of visceral sense of are you responding to the written word or the spoken word in a way that somebody in 100 CE might have
1: responded. I mean, I think I've, um, I've just got a very silly sensibility and I'm <laughs> always looking for what Bob Mortimer would call a daft laugh.
2: But I think it, I think those kind of jokey things are quite interesting, is partly for the reason that you say that, not so much because they make you chortle, but because they turn a lens onto the society that produces them. Jokes are very good for kind of turning you into an observer of yourself. Yes. In in some ways, I find that's what I think of when I when I'm reading ancient jokes. I mean, there are, you know, there are compilations of ancient jokes made in antiquity. You know, saying you know here's you know 500 one-liners.
1: Are there any contemporary writers who make you laugh? I, I mean, I suppose that's a good question because if
2: I say I'm not laughing at, at ancient jokes. Maybe I'm not laughing at modern jokes either. I think I don't sit and read a book and find myself laughing. You know I can think oh, that's quite that's witty, that's clever um you know in some ways, laughter is such a communal activity, I and mean, it's why they put canned laughter on radio
0: programs
1: and maybe this comes back to what you were saying about. Growing up, and you know, not feeling as though you wanted to be, you know, sort of sequestered away somewhere yeah. with a book. Yeah. That it is, um, that's not what your reading yeah. life is. That's yeah. something that happens in other times and places.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it is, and I, but I think that, I think that laughter is so social. I mean, you know, just very, you know, if I, if I listen to, you know, one of those, not always very funny. 6.30 radio programs on Radio 4, you know, the comedy half hour, oh my goodness me um, I-, I will laugh if my husband's around with me, we will laugh together at something, in a way that I, I would never do if I was on my own and so in, in part I'm judging you know, I-, I don't think you can judge wit or cleverness on on the page by uh, a kind of calibration of how much it actually makes you laugh, um, I think you're probably asking it to do too much. I, I, there's only one ancient piece of literature I've ever laughed out loud at, and perhaps that's kind of par for the course. Really, it was, it's a a skit written by Nero's tutor, the Emperor Nero's tutor, about um, uh, the Emperor Claudius uh, being made a god. Um, and the Emperor Claudius is a sort of frightful kind of bumbling old thing, and he's going up to heaven. Uh, and it's a short work; it's you know, it's not kind of not 50 pages, I imagine, of just telling the story about how how this old dodgy old emperor goes up to heaven to be made a god. And I remember when I first read that, I there were some little one-liners that I thought, oh, that's quite funny. You know, Claudius bumps into Hercules, and Hercules starts speaking Greek, and Claudius says, oh. Thank
1: Goodness, there's some learned people in heaven. <laughs> Do <don't> you know anything? <laughs> Which I suppose is pomposity, isn't it? Which it's I think po- is the one thing that is maybe perennially funny. Yes, you can always that's recognize. right. You can,
2: and you can always take it down. So you laugh at pomposity. It's like there's a wonderful description, eyewitness description in an ancient historian writing in the third century CE, who's a senator, guy called Dio Cassius, Cassius Dio, um, and he describes being. On the front row of the Colosseum, um, because he was a senator, and uh, the senators got front row seats. Uh, and the emperor Commodus of gladiator fame is in the arena doing quite a lot of the stuff that he does in the movie Gladiator. It was not it was not inaccurate in that sense. And at one point, um, Commodus uh, decapitates uh, an ostrich. Um, and uh, the ostrich has been kind of penned up, and so it's no danger. He manages to, I think, spear it and then decapitate it. He then goes over to the front row. He he takes the head. He goes over to the front row of the senators. He holds the ostrich head up with one hand, and he holds a sword up with the other and kind of gestures between them. Uh, Dias says, who actually witnessed this, um, as if to say, you next, guys, right? And dio says so what was our reaction and he says well it was to giggle of course you know and that's the pomposity line but dio then realizes as he describes it in this you know this this is a vast work of roman history and you kind of come across these gems a bit rarely um he says what so what did i do and he said i thought it'd be death absolute death if 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 I burst out laughing. So he was in his very best outfit and he was wearing a laurel wreath on his head. So he plucked a leaf out of his laurel wreath and he bit on it very hard and uh, managed to stop himself laughing. <laughs> and you know, that's that's both pomposity um, because why do you laugh at Commander's? Well, Because he's looking such an idiot, actually. You know, he's only decapitated an ostrich. That wasn't a great... And very proudly, there he is. But also yeah. there's that feeling. You know, it's one of the very, very rare feelings um, about laughter, I think, in the ancient world, where you actually, you can sort of understand what that guy's going through. You understand what it is like to want to laugh when you shouldn't.
1: Yes, it's such a specific sensory thing, yeah. isn't it? Because I don't know exactly what a laurel leaf would feel like to bite but I can kind of imagine that it's like pencil when you're at school know, yeah, or your finger
2: oh, you have to do it. with your finger you have to do it enough to hurt right
1: uh, why don't you come back to something you said about um reading other authors who perhaps even if it's not necessarily a period you're writing about you're considering what you're sort of learning from their mm. from their style and their storytelling um are there any contemporary authors who do inspire you oh look lo- uh,
2: there's such wonderful history writing at the moment um you know, I think that somebody I've, I've you know, actually known for a long time and he came into uh, writing about history and the ancient world from being a novelist is Tom Holland. And he started out writing rather gothic novels, which I have to say I haven't read, but I, I've looked at what they are. Uh, and then he decided he wanted to write about Roman history. And he wrote an amazing book about what we call the late Republic, the first century BC, up, up to the death of Caesar. And I remember reading that, and I, I remember thinking, you know, I'm going to feel a slightly sort of... Bit, I'm going to, am I going to look down on this? Because, you know, Tom Hollander's... a novelist interfering you know, with your no, that's right. business. Yes, that's right. Uh, and, of course, I felt quite the reverse when when I read it, because I thought, he is able to bring some of those skills about making bits of the past come alive the books called Rubicon. And it's, I think it's well worth reading Um uh that I was never not just, I wasn't taught to do, I wasn't encouraged to do. Mm. I mean, I, because I think that, that writing is, uh, you know, despite the fact that you know I had my encounter with my older friend who told me I was boring, um, so just occasionally in non-fiction writing just occasionally you know people think a very long book with a very large number of footnotes is something really good mm. and it doesn't matter if people don't sort of smile when they're reading it and think this is good so I think Tom Holland's book is great.
1: We had, um, as a guest on the podcast, I don't know if you've ever come across the writer and journalist, uh, Govandra Hodge. Oh, who... yeah, I taught her. Oh, did you really? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I loved her memoir. Um, it was brilliant. Consequences it was of Love.
2: absolutely brilliant.
1: Um, and and heard... I t- when I taught her, I didn't know
2: any of that.
1: She told me a story about, because I think she's doing, oof. An MA or possibly a PhD in a very specific bit of classical history, which escapes me, but she said that she was, I think, taken aside and asked if she. um I'm sure she won't mind me sharing this. No, I'm sure she'd share it with me. Um, I'm <laughs> sure she would. Um, it requires some sort of, you know, tuition and like learning sort of how to write. And you know, she's sort of been yes a full time journalist for years, and memoirist yeah. for ages. And it was because she said she was writing things like you know the poem was hotly anticipated by the Pope <laughs> and apparently you can't say that and that fascinates me how to make it and that's you know the hooking people in and I think we do live in such a sort of clicky hooky time as well where they well same as it ever was I think I've been um, reading um, Coming Up for Air by George Orwell yeah. and he satirizes sort of sensational newspaper stories yeah. very well and there's a fictionalized and um, there's a really grisly murder and I'm sort of delighted by the fact that everyone in the 30s just wanted to read horrible, horrible, grisly murders. Yes, it was like true yes, crime yes the, the idea
2: that we are the first generation to be hooked on true crime is so wrong.
1: Completely. And there's this awful story in the book about this woman who's been sort of dismembered and scattered and they found her legs. And it gets to a point where the news papers they all just say legs on the front and that's it <laughs> <I don't laughs> that know, made me laugh <laughs> you know,
2: i think it's difficult because you know if i had gav here and her, she won't mind me saying this i'd say <laughs> i'd say when do people normally use hotly anticipated you know google it and see and is that really what you're wanting to say i think that the best non-fiction writing is surprising in the language it uses just slightly mm. surprising it doesn't kind of fit into the template of the journalistic article or whatever it but it discomforts you slightly yes. i mean i think it's great to read and write about the past in ways that just jolt you out of that of your comfort zone
1: I suppose thinking about, you know, Gav's memoir, which is a very intimate, personal yeah. history and a very, very, very recent history. But um, another book I love. Did you ever read On Chapel Sands?
2: No, I, I haven't. No. Um,
1: and it's this sort of this idea of coming yeah. to your past as an art historian. Yes. yes. But I was thinking about that when you were talking about um, a framework in history and, that, and you couldn't write a book about, you know, people sort of out living themselves and an alternative reign. But I was thinking, but then Craig Brown sort of did, or yeah. Toys a Little Hints at it, and yeah. then um, Curtis Sittenfeld and um, Rodham, which I really loved. I yes. thought that was such a bold and interesting yes. exploration.
2: Yes, yes, it was. But then it, it fits, interestingly, with Clinton's own book about the Secretary of State that she did with whoever it was. But I, remem- I, I remember reading Rodham and that book... At the same time, I'm thinking kind of how, you know, what interesting sort of exploration It's Again, it's the exploration of the boundary between fiction and nonfiction, I, And I don't think in history writing that's new. I think that's what, you know, good history writing has often pushed that boundary. Going back to the ancient world, I mean, st- students are often very puzzled that if you take a historian like Cassius Dio, who I've mentioned, or the historian Tacitus, um, you know, in the middle of a quite, in sometimes quite austere narrative, um, they will insert speeches, conversations held between, you know, the emperor and their advisor, or the emperor and the guy they want to get rid of, or whatever, in Rome, um, that they've just made up. Yeah. They've simply made it up students often find that quite disconcerting because they think history shouldn't have made up bits in mm. but actually history was pretty much bought well, with the Rodgers and Thucydides having made up bits in it
1: not to do that thing that I we were just talking about earlier that we shouldn't do about saying well it's fine that this is happening now because it happened before but I think about this you know deep fake. there has always been a version of that we were just talking about it the other day when sort of things are, are cited and obviously you know, you of all people know about, you know, the most rigorous of sort of, of source checking, but that gets to a point where where you can't. And someone, you know, may well have read that and passed that off as just, be, you know, an invented conversation. Yeah. And then it only takes, in, you know, layers yeah. upon yeah. layers. Yeah. And it's sort of the, you know, the trail ends somewhere and no, no. one can trace it further.
2: No, and I think, I, and it gets increasingly mixed up. So Tacitus invents the comment made by the Emperor, which then becomes the comment made by the Emperor, even though um, he never made it. It was entirely written by Tacitus. And we're we're used to that kind of uncertainty about authorship all the time. Mm. I mean, not just the ghostwriter. I mean, I don't know how much Harry wrote uh, in spare. Nothing very much, I I suppose.
1: That actually leads me neatly to um, possibly my last question. I was wondering if you could be a ghostwriter, for a figure from the past, and work with them on a memoir. Who would you?
2: Oh, like I have no doubt about this. It would be Agrippina, the mother of Nero, um, who was reputed to have had an affair with her son, reputed to have killed her, her husband Nero's stepfather, the Emperor Claudius, who then went up to heaven, um, in order to pave the way for um, Nero to come to the throne and actually Agrippina did write an autobiography um but it's one of those kind of um terribly sad losses um from the literature of the ancient world that never made it through it didn't didn't get copied and recopied and cherished uh and it's i suppose it's my it's the book i'd really want to have if i could have any from 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 the classical world that didn't survive, but given that he doesn't survive, then what I'd do is I'd have to ghostwrite him, and so that that would be an, an immense pleasure. And I suspect I'd find that she was innocent on all counts.
1: <laughs> do you I know
2: something I, about a collapsible boat? There is a Nero tried to get rid of her in a collapsible boat um, uh, when he was tiring of her influence, having decided that he wanted to have no more to do with incest with Mummy, um, but he'd forgotten that she could swim.
1: that's a great note to finish on I think always remember people can probably swim after a fashion (laughs) no it's been such a pleasure and a joy I can't thank you enough for your time um I really really loved this conversation thank you so much thank you both thank you Daisy huge thanks to Mary Emperor of Rome is published by Profile and out on the 28th of September thanks again to JLF and Saniva Fushi for making it happen your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and created by Dale Shaw and me, Daisy Buchanan. The podcast is hosted by ACAST. You can find a list of all the books Mary mentioned at acast.com slash booked and find a selection of her choices at bookshop.org. You can find us on social media at Why Booked. And if you've given us a five-star review, we're so grateful. We love it when you share this podcast with other readers. It's a great way to help other people to discover their new favourite books. Finally, I leave you with this from Rosamond Lehman. The novel will never die, but it will keep changing and evolving and taking different shapes. See you next time.